Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with Anna Holmes, who's a writer. You may recognize her byline from the New York Times or New Yorker. She also wrote for Entertainment Weekly, which is where she really got her chops in writing about entertainment and the cultural zeitgeist, which she then brought to Jezebel. She was the founding editor of Jezebel. Uh, It is an addictive website. I think I check it about 17 times a day, which looks at the cultural zeitgeist from a feminist perspective. And from my perspective, it just means that it doesn't belittle women and it'll look at ways that women are belittled. But even though it's by women, it's for everyone. I don't know anyone who wouldn't enjoy this site. Okay, I'll let me rephrase that. I don't know anyone who has a moral compass who wouldn't enjoy this site and has a sense of humor who wouldn't enjoy the website. My only other addictive web pastime was I, I used to, I went on OkCupid and I got so freaked out by it that I went on Petfinder and got a dog. So I feel like this this is a much better one, Jezebel. I don't end up uh, adopting you know young or old women. I didn't mean to be ageist in that. I don't know why I said the the age part. It's amazing. You can just degrade a group without even meaning to. It's just casual ageism that just came out there. Well, hopefully uh, no more casual injuries will be happening in this intro because I'm going to let us go straight to the interview. It was taped at the Writers Guild. Thank you to the Writers Guild. Thank you to Anna Holmes and to all of you listening. Enjoy. Let me know what you think after. I'm sitting with Anna Holmes. I'm very excited at the Writers Guild in New York City. Was there a moment where you were like, I, I want to write? You know, I've thought about that, and I don't remember when it was, but there had to have been, because I don't recall being nine years old and wanting to be a writer. Um, I think when I was nine, I wanted to be a dancer or an actress or something, you know, but maybe that's the case with all nine-year-old girls. But definitely in my adolescence, I think that... When I became aware of the power of language, like when I was a- not when I was able to read something and not just enjoy it kind of mindlessly, but 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 enjoy the actual language and the way it was being deployed, when I became aware of, of what people could do with words, then I wanted to do that as well. So I would say that that was sometime in my adolescence, maybe 13, 14, but I don't re- I don't remember a specific moment. Like I don't I didn't I don't remember an aha moment. You weren't working at Baskin Robbins one day, and you're like, you know what? No. I really should. How do you know I worked at Baskin Robbins? <laughs> <laughs> you did your homework. No, no, no. This was long before Baskin Robbins. <laughs> long before the three kinds of sherbet I used to get from yeah. them. You worked at Star Magazine. I just want to get a sense of like where you started out. Uh, my first job out of college was at Entertainment Weekly. Okay. Where did you go to school? I went to NYU. So I, I left Davis when I was 18 to come to New York and go to NYU because I wanted to be in New York because it was New York. But I also wanted to be a writer and it felt like you had to be in New York to be a writer. Um, and you knew that at 18? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to study journalism. I wanted to be a journalist. So I applied to a number of schools on the East Coast. Now, first of all, I wanted to get away from California. But I also wanted to be in New York, so it was perfect. You know, um, I did not want to be where I had grown up. I did not like, by that point, I didn't like my hometown. Maybe that's the case, again, with all adolescents is that they can't wait to get away from where they grew up. But I could not wait. So I went to NYU, and I studied journalism, which was a total waste because <laughs> I didn't learn anything. Uh, and by the time I realized that it was a waste of time or that I wasn't learning that much and, you know, as, a, as a journalism major, I was already like three years into college, and if I had switched majors, I would have had to have stayed you know, an extra semester or an extra year, which I couldn't afford to do because it's a very expensive school. So I just finished out the major, and you know, when I was in school, I was an intern at different magazines. So I'd been an intern at The New Yorker, and I'd been an intern at The New York Press, which was like a, a, yeah. a weekly, a free weekly. I don't think I was an intern at Paper Magazine. I seem to remember that I 
went for an interview there, but I don't remember actually working there. But um, this doesn't seem like a waste if you were able to do all of these internships. Well, and sort of that's get right. I mean, and, and that's what it turns out I was actually paying for, you know, for like the 15 years after I graduated when I was paying off my student loans. I was really paying to be in New York and have that sort of access. But, you know, I didn't find my classes at NYU to be particularly challenging. And it's a kind of, you know, anonymous school. I mean, it's, you know, it's a collection of buildings in the village. Uh, the, 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 there's no kind of cohesiveness. And I think if I had known that maybe that's what would have been better for me, I would have gone to a different school. Even Barnard, which I had applied to and gotten into but didn't go to because they didn't give me enough financial aid. That at least has like a campus and a sense of like, you know, it's a school and it's a much, Barnard at least is a, is a much smaller school than NYU. And you know, there seems to be a more of a community, but NYU just felt kind of aimless. I'm not saying that I was aimless. I had a group of friends, but it just wasn't, um, I guess if I could do it over again, part of me thinks I should have gone to like a liberal arts school somewhere in the Midwest with like a campus and a quad and, you know, it snowed and you would run around and have snowball fights. It, it snowed in it. It snows in New York, but it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a lot of internships, yeah, and, and I ended up getting hired at Entertainment Weekly after I had finished an internship with them. To me, the, from the other perspective of having gone to Wesleyan and not being able to get any of these, not even be able to pitch most places, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where I even mm-hmm. get a, an email back. In some ways, it seems like your background is similar to friends who went to RISD, hmm. you know, who went to art school mm-hmm. or some kind of trade school mm-hmm. in which, like, you were paying for access to these job yeah. opportunities, yeah. whereas, like, I had a wonderfully intellectually stimulating mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. but it's different. Well, you know, it's interesting because the other interns that I worked alongside, especially at Entertainment Weekly, which had a pretty robust internship program, so there were at least four, you know, four to five to six of us at any given time, they didn't all go to school in New York. One of them had gone to Princeton. One of them went to Harvard. I mean, I can't even tell this, this, sound, this sounds like so, an Onion article. I know, I know. You know there they, was a lot of diversity. Some kids were from Newport, yeah. and some people were from <laughs> Greenwich. So certainly they had big advantages because they were going to these fancy schools. But I guess what I'm saying is that being in New York wasn't necessarily an indicator of whether or not you had access. A lot of whether you had access was what sort of family you grew up in, what your economic class was, what college you went to. And so they had that as a calling card, I suppose, and I didn't have any of that. What I you had was that I was that. in New York. But, but, I, but a, I didn't have, like, an, a family who, who was connected to the editor. You know, I mean, there, there no, was... No, but you yeah. had a tremendous sense of direction. To know, to know at so, 18 yeah. that you want to be a journalist and you're going to come to New York and do this. Yes, but let me also just say that I didn't know that I wanted to be a journalist. It wasn't like, you know, there are people who grew up who, who know what they want to be... You know, as they as they age and like what their career is going to be like and what age they're going to get married ideally and what you know like when they're going to start having kids. When I say that I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. So what what that means is that I wanted to try being being a journalist, but I was never sh- you know totally certain about it. But to even were, have that inclination, hmm, maybe okay. Well, I always kind of thought of it as me being somewhat lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is always you know? good to know what we project onto. You know, these because I didn't, I never would have described myself as someone who knew what she wanted to do. It was like, well, I like writing, I like journalism, I want to write for magazines, or see if I can, and I guess I'll try this. But there were, you know, there are still times now, and I'm 40, when I think, eh, I am, maybe I'm bored with this. Maybe I should do something else, like become a veterinarian, or I don't know, just try something else. Like I kind of feel like um, it's a super easy profession to start late in life. Yeah, yeah There's like exactly. so little schooling involved. Nope, also, it t- pays nothing. really well right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually think I think I couldn't handle being a vet, not because of that, but because of the fact that it would be very emotional and I would get upset it's, about sick animals. It's so. got to be so painful, yeah, and also that you, you memorize all these different bodies. Yeah, it would, and I'm kind of squeamish. I just like animals. Maybe oh, I should yeah. just work with animals in a context where they're not like dying or sick. Um, so 
when you were doing these different internships, was there a particular place that stuck out or people you worked with that stuck out? And you're like, oh, I want to do this. Um, well, I, I think I'd have to go back to Entertainment Weekly because that was the internship that I had the longest. Um, they let us write. Now, not they didn't just hand us assignments. We had to like pitch stuff. And, and, and when we got to write things, they were you know, small items at the front, in the front part of the magazine. These were not features or anything. But they gave us a lot of... Uh, not autonomy, but a lot of encouragement to contribute, and that was the case with the editorial assistants, which is what I became after I got hired from, from my internship. There was a bit of a break. There was six months between the end of my internship and when I got hired. And, and you know, I, I had liked pop culture quite a bit. I, I don't think I had realized that it could be that, 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 that the critiques of pop culture could actually be someone's job, because everyone who worked at EW was so into whatever their you know, particular um, um, subject was. So the people who were in the film department uh, really, really, really loved movies, and the people in the TV department really, really, really loved TV. And they, the, the ways that they, that they talked about it and the intelligence and the humor that they brought to it, I think it was a little bit alien to me. And it was a very, very popular magazine. And you know, it's, I, I would say, unfortunately, it's not as popular now, but a lot of magazines are struggling because a lot of what they did is all over the internet now. Um, but that was really its heyday, and, and people, I mean, I assumed that it was making good money, and people there were, you know, high on life. <laughs> um, so Were they high on other things as well? Uh, one, I think there was one guy who tended to smoke pot in his office, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I mean, tame, that, yeah, that's yeah, tame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, when did you go on to edit this book, Hell Hath No Fury? Oh, well, that was after 2002. I 2002. Well, I didn't, well, that's when it came out, but okay. I, I, I was working on it from 2000 to 2001. I had worked at Glamour Magazine. And that was after Entertainment yes, Weekly. As a as a staff writer, which meant that I wrote features for every issue that were usually assigned to me. I mean, I guess I would kind of pitch stuff, but usually they would they would decide, they being the, the higher-ups, what they wanted, and I would have to execute it. And I hated these stories because they were all the same. They were either sex stories or relationship stories, and I had to be kind of like punchy in them, but they had no real personality. And they were always about instructing the female reader how to... Get a man, keep a man, please a man, etc. Hated it, hated it, hated it. What's punchy? Um, when I say punchy, I guess maybe cutesy. Like, what's um, cutesy? For example, for some reason there was a story that involved sex and food, and somehow we came up with the phrase "chili con carnal." Like that's what I mean. Like just like stupid like puns. I guess they're wittier on Gawker, Jessica. I don't think but that's very witty. Are... I, no, 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 I'm saying yeah. I guess they are wittier, yes. but they are still, but... Well, but I don't think that, that, that Gawker or Jezebel tends to, you know, um, rely on alliteration as much. Okay. Um, or, or puns in that same way, or those sorts of puns that are kind of groan-inducing. Like, they're, 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 the puns... Like torquable? I just made that up on the spot. Yeah, it's good. Is that's that good. not groan-inducing or why? That's very groan-inducing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, I think the jokes on the Gawker sites are a bit more sophisticated than... The jokes, yes. quote unquote, but in, in the women's magazine. The point I was making was that you are still having to come up with catchy phrases. They're just ones that you want to read. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Or, the, or but, but exactly. But, but the, like they're reflective of the writer's personality. Whereas the writers at those magazines, at least when I was there, were writing in a certain voice. They were not writing in their voice. They were writing in the kind of house style voice, um, which gets very tiring because it feels very phony and repetitive. So after I left Glamour, I. I had sold a book, which was, I would describe as a cultural history of the female breakup letter. And so they, they were fiction and nonfiction. There were, what, 365 yes. of them? 
Um, I didn't count them, but there were a lot of them. The majority of them were real, which is to say nonfiction. There was and is a, a chapter in there called The Fictional Letter. Yeah. So there's letters from works of fiction in which a female character is breaking off a relationship or commenting on a relationship that's already broken down. But the majority of the letters were, were real. I'd say the majority of them were historical in nature, which is to say they were older. There were some contemporary letters, none by particularly famous women. In fact, most of the contemporary ones were written by young women who just gave them to me, um, emails or letters they had written. And I had just... Didn't Cindy Chupaca, sorry, I'm trying to yeah, remember. Yeah. It's been a while since yeah. I, re I read the book. Mm -hmm. um, right as well. So there were famous writers and, mm -hmm. or respected writers, mm -hmm. is what I would say more than And, you know, I, I, I reached out to her and asked her for... A letter because I figured she'd be the sort of person who would have written one. And at the time, she was, you know, I don't know if she was the head writer on Sex in the City, but she was certainly, you know, the right uh, TV writer to go to. Yeah, to <laughs> totally. Like if you're if you're going to find a writer who, who writes about women and, and relationships um, for television, that's the one you want, right? So yeah, I, I just I, I had written a breakup letter, or rather an email, to a guy who had he stood me up twice. Now, he wasn't like someone I just went on a couple dates with. Like we had, we had been dating for like four months. But that's how the book came about. I, I decided that I wanted to like collect these sorts of letters. And I, and I was, you know, I did a little market research and I couldn't find any books of these sorts of letters. There were books of love letters, but not books of kind of their opposite. And well, it seemed to me that women wrote them a lot more often than men, so I focused it on women. What did you get out of editing that book and, and this book as a writer? With the first book, I wrote introductory material to each letter to put everything in context, to say who it was from, who, who it was to, the year, you know, the, 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 the contours of their relationship, how it ended, um, to like set up the actual letter. But I didn't consider that to be writing. I just considered that to be kind of explication. I meant um, as a writer, uh -huh. what do you get out of editing? Oh, um, that's a great question. Well, I think I just become a better writer because you know, part of being a good writer is knowing what to cut and knowing what to edit uh, and, you know, how to kill the things that you love the most. So I think that that's what I got out of, uh, out of that experience. But, you know, I don't think of that first book as being something I, where I learned a lot as a writer. I think, I think of it as something where I learned a lot about myself. Like what? Um, it was the first time, well, I had about nine months to do the book, which is not very much time. And I knew that I could do a fairly good book if I worked at 100% capacity, but I also knew that if I worked at 150% capacity, it could be even better, which is to say, instead of doing it like a normal person where I would get up and you know work on the book, but like, have lunch and you know be a human being and see my friends, <laughs> all I did was work on this book from morning till night and didn't go out and didn't see my friends because there was a lot of research I had to do, and I really wanted it to be not academic, but just very dense. Um, what I learned about myself is, I guess, one, that when I have a feeling of ownership over something, that I work very, very, very hard um, to make it good, sometimes to the exclusion of everything else in my life. And that's, that's maybe a, a, a bit of a negative. The positive was that uh, it was the first time in my life when I had been able to tell people no and by that I mean not seeing my friends or not being able to have long conversations on the phone with my mother. The first time in my life where I had been able to like kind of put up a boundary and, and say, I need to focus on this. I can't really be there for you in any meaningful way until I get this thing done because I need to be there for this. And I do think, you know, and you can tell me whether this was the case with you, but I do feel that 
women are socialized to be available to other people, to be helpful, to be caretakers, in, in whatever way that means, whether it's a literal caretaker or whether it's just being emotionally present. Or and, and, and it was the first time that I had been able to have a reason to say, I can't be that for you. And it was for a set period of time. It wasn't you know, for the rest of my life. But that was very, I think, freeing, the, having a reason to say no to people. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like there were hundreds of people clamoring for my attention at all times. But no, you know, I understand. Just, it, just, in, just in life. And I think, um, so, so, so that was very freeing to me. Um, and you know, it, the, the other thing that was, that was positive about it was that it was akin to the feeling I had when I was a kid when I would sit on the floor and, let's say, play by myself. Having a fascination with what's going on in your own head and liking your own company is what I got out of doing that book. And I hadn't felt that way in a long time. So um, I would say that was less the case with, with the new book because this was a collaboration. I mean, I had to interact with you know, dozens of writers and, and illustrators. Um, in order to put it together, whereas the, the, the first book really was just me in, in the library doing research. So let's talk about uh, the website so then we can get to the Book of Jezebel. Okay. So in, in around 2006, Nick Denton, who's the founder of Gawker, approached mm -hmm. you? Uh, I wouldn't say he approached me. He had... Who approached you? It's very important. Okay. And where were you sitting and what were <laughs> okay. you wearing Who approached me was... <laughs> was um, it by fax? <laughs> <laughs> it, was by, it was by a smoke signal. Uh, I had a friend named Deli who... I'd worked with at Star Magazine, who is a young British woman, and was very funny and acerbic. And she somehow—I don't remember how she knew Nick. I may, they had may, they had perhaps gone to, to like secondary school together. Like they, they, they went back to England, like their connection. Maybe her sister would, had been classmates with them. I forget. But she was uh, a magazine editor in New York, and she had a blog. And there were people at that time who had personal blogs, and they all knew each other, and they all hung out together. And Nick knew them because he had, you know, a couple of professional quote-unquote blogs, but she was in this scene with, with all these bloggers. And he had asked her if he, she wanted to start what he was calling Girly Gawker. That was like a placeholder name, which was going to ha be a, a, a site for women in the Gawker network about that would have celebrity and fashion stuff. So she asked me, would I want to help her with this? And I said, absolutely not. I, I, no, I don't want to do that because it was the internet. And yes, I read blogs, but that was not what anyone I knew who worked in print had ever done. They had never gone to the internet. And also, you know, it was notorious for like paying people very badly. At the time, I'm 34, and you know, I, I would like to not have to live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I guess I was living paycheck to paycheck, but, but not in the sense that um, I would run out of money, you know, five days before payday. Well, like Gawker I, really signaled a, a new, and I think negatively so, future where freelance journalism was no longer going to be something that you could live off of. Mm -hmm. Well, it was hard to live off live and, off of anyway, you know, when I had been a freelancer. Yes, but, yes. but there was a dramatic change. Um, I mean, I, I was earning a living as a freelancer, yeah. and suddenly I was not earning yeah. a living as a yeah. freelancer. I mean, he, I mean they, were, they were paying their writers like $12 a post, yeah. but, you know, back then, which is just, you know, I don't know how you do that unless you have rich parents. So she, you know, she asked me if I would want to work on it with her. I said no. <laughs> and then we spent like the next two hours talking about what it could be. Um, which signaled to me that maybe I was more interested than I thought. So there were some discussions with her, um, but mostly discussions with Nick and his deputy, Lockhart Steele, who was the editorial director of Gawker Media. And at the same time that I was talking to them, uh, I was working at InStyle magazine, and they asked me to go run their website. 
so all of a sudden I have these two kind of offers to work on the internet, you know, which I wasn't expecting. The idea of running InStyle's website, however flattering that may be, that they asked me, was not something I wanted to do because I knew that I would just be looking at red carpet photos and like helping the reporters caption them or like sending reporters to like events. It would have been so boring. I, I'm now given these two opportunities and one's with an established media company that has a great benefits package that's, you know, InStyle's not gonna be folding anytime soon. It's a very successful magazine, stable, but God, I would have like hated myself. And then this kind of, you know, well, it hadn't been formed yet. We hadn't decided what it was gonna be. I was told that they were willing to match my salary, that I'd had it in style, which was like what kind of, like the light bulb went on. And was that a good salary? I think it was pretty good, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was in the high five figures. Yeah, I think it was pretty good. So I said yes, I would, that I would help Delhi uh, start whatever this girly gawker thing was. Very soon after I agreed to do that, she decided that she wanted to go back to England to be with her sister and her niece, who she really missed terribly. I mean, I really think that she loves New York, but it seemed to me that she had really ached for her family back home. And so she kind of, it seemed to me, abruptly decided to go back. And at first, the, you know, the, the, the plan was that she would work from there and I would work from New York. And then there were, I don't know what happened in the discussions between her and, and Nick and Lockhart, but then it became, okay, well, I'll run the site and she'll contribute to it since it's hard to run a site for a company in New York when you're in London. And then she didn't seem to want to do it at all. So I was then told that, okay, well, I'm going to start the site on my own, which was not what I was expecting. I thought I was going to go into this with my friend and we would be like a little team and, and, and have a good time. And now I was kind of on my own, which was terrifying. But I'd already said no to InStyle. I'd already agreed to you know, work for Gawker. And, and you know, there was a part of me that was like, okay, 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 let's see what we can do. But I had never worked on the internet before. So let's just, I want to make that clear. It wasn't like I was a, a veteran or understood um, how to code or, or do HTML. I had only been a consumer of the internet, unlike a lot of other people in that world who had come from other blogs. I wanted to do a, a, a women's media pro property or a media property for women that I would want to read, which is to say they would not tell women, young or old, how to look, uh, what to be obsessed with, i.e. You know, well, men, um, that wouldn't tell them what to buy, that wouldn't be promoting the sort of conspicuous consumption and like obsession with appearance and um, romantic status that women's magazines, many of which I'd worked for, had been doing for decades. I wanted to, you know, certainly we would talk about fashion um, and celebrity stuff, but hopefully in a smart way, a smarter way. And we would also talk about things like politics because the women that I knew were interested in a variety of different topics and this was not being reflected in women's magazines, nor were nor was the diversity of women period being reflected in women's magazines because you know you'd open up a magazine and it you know it didn't bear any resemblance to you know at least New York um, and many other parts of the country it was very white um, and, and skinny although I, I would say that and Jezebel has created a whole new culture and and I don't know was Wonkat at the same time as Jezebel Wonkat was our, had our, was already around okay so Wonkat and I want to include that then in mm -hmm. this saying that there was a whole culture that was going on where women could be smart and superficial, and that was also what was going on with feminism in general, mm -hmm. that the definition of it was going to bridge past the political mm -hmm. in a sort of theoretical sense to mm -hmm. how do I apply this to my everyday, mm -hmm. and what do I do if I also wear lipstick? Mm -hmm. you know, like those mm -hmm. kinds of questions I think our generation was having to mm -hmm. ask ourselves. I think there were debates about that, but I didn't want to have a debate about that on the site. I just wanted to treat it as the default, that we would talk about 
lipstick or whatever, and also talk about politics, as like, opposed to like you know looking inward too much and wondering what does it mean if we like to you know wear wear thigh high boots. We're growing up in an era where we had the privilege of studying feminist theory and all of these things in college, so mm-hmm. that by the time we got to real life done. Mm-hmm. I, I no longer needed to study those things because mm-hmm. I had studied those things and written about them. Um, and so I de- definitely see that Jezebel was part of this culture, but I guess I get confused when you say that you weren't, that Jezebel doesn't um, support certain brands or things like that because even like they're championing certain, I don't know, feminist actors or things like that. It's still in some ways championing a brand, like definitely go hmm. watch this show. Sure. But but, know, but, but but those are things that those are things that the writers and the editors genuinely like, as opposed to favors that we're making on the behalf of advertisers or, or ways in which we were trying not to piss off advertisers. Because you know when you look at the beauty pages of, of, of a women's service magazine, the majority of the products in there are not being chosen because they're necessarily the best. It's because the beauty editor feels that she has to give back a favor to Estee Lauder or Smashbox or what have you for advertising in the magazine. I mean, I overheard these conversations happen all the time where they were like, well, what, you know, what concealer should we feature this year or this month? And they, they would you know, look at a bunch and think, well, okay, well, we, we haven't put CoverGirl in for a while. Let's do that. It had nothing to do with the actual quality or, or like what these editors believed. It had to do with quid pro quo. How much do you face that with um, native advertising and things like that from – you know, try, trying to deal with the advertising on, on Jezebel. And I know you no, no longer work there, um, I'm just curious. At the time when I was running the site, the reason I think that the site struck a chord is in part because we got to do whatever we, we wanted. We never were told that we had to watch out what we said or what we said about this advertiser, potential or otherwise, or that advertiser. It, they were completely separate. I know that a lot of media companies, you know, have this idea of church and state. You know, there's the business side and the editorial side, and that, that they're separated. They're not, because I've been in those environments. This was really quite separate. In fact, oftentimes I wouldn't, you know, every day I would never know what, what ads were going to go up on the site until I saw them myself. When I, you know, I logged in, you know, in the site, we started publishing stuff. And a lot of the times I didn't like the ads that were on the site. You know, I would see these ads for, like, reality shows that, you know, I, I felt were perhaps being watched by our readership but were really kind of dumb and, and not representative of what the site was about and I would get grumpy about it, but I wouldn't complain about it. I mean, because it was so separate. I just never dealt with the advertising side, ever. As a writer, did you feel like you weren't writing as much? Did you miss it? Mm-mm. No. I, I, well, in the beginning when there were just three of us, I had to write a bit um, just because we had, a lot, we had to put up a lot of content and I, there were two, only two other writers. Once I got a bigger budget and I could hire more people, I was unable to write as much because I needed to, I needed to edit them. And I also had to help them find stories. That was one thing that writers on other blogs, they were tasked to find their own stories. And I felt that that was a bit of a distraction so that I would take that out of the equation for my writers. I would give them options of things to write about and then they could tell me what they wanted to write about um, so they wouldn't be spending 20 minutes you know, searching the internet trying to find stuff. So. You know, I, I would 20 say, minutes. <laughs> well, or, or maybe more. I mean, it, it, it's funny because I would actually love to know what it would have been like if, I, if just one day I had told them they were all on their own. And that's not to say that they didn't find stuff on their own, but like they knew that they could count on me to give them options, that that wasn't going to be a stress in their life. Because what they did every single day was something that I never could have done. I, could, I edited the site. I had the big picture. You know, I was, I, you know... I ran the site and I was very, very involved with it. You know, I'm probably too much of a micromanager. But I don't know that I could have written posts that 
took, let's say, three different news stories and you know had them coalesce into one blog post that was smart and that was funny and that you know kind of um, summarized these kind of three different takes that had come out that day on, on on the news of the day and do this in 45 minutes. They did this over and over and over again all day long. You know, I, I said then I don't know if I told them personally, but I would tell other people that you know, yes, I ran the site, but I don't think I could have actually done their jobs. Uh, I was in awe of the fact or in the ways in which they turned around stuff. And you know, the thing is, the funny thing about that was, you couldn't look at someone's resume and know whether it was gonna work out, because the pace was so bananas. Um, no How one, many posts a day around? Um, per person or total? Per person. I, they, they were usually doing 10, eight, eight to 10, but a lot of them were very you know, meaty, and, and, and they had to turn them around really quickly, and they had to be smart about it. Um, you know, in, in total, there were usually like 70 to 80 posts a day, but that's because I was putting up like a little, what we called quick links, which I, which I had the, the brain space to do when I was, the, you know, in, in addition to editing them and photo editing and so on and so forth. I, I could put up little one-liner um, posts directing people to a story or a, a photo that I would use as, as a kind of interstitial content between posts. Um, so we ended up posting in total in terms of, separate items, 80 things a day, but they were writing maybe yeah, eight, eight to 10 a day. And there were, I think at the most, six staffers at the most, or when we had the most staffers, I think the staff was six, six total. And you left after three years. Were, mm -hmm. were you exhausted? Was oh, it a yeah. relief to leave? I wouldn't say it was a relief. It was, well, there were a couple of things. I was burnt out. Um, I worked all day, every day. I mean, I got up at six in the morning. The first post went up at, eight, at nine, so I was spending time preparing stuff before we started actually posting live. Uh, we would usually end at around seven or eight, um, and then I would spend the rest of the night preparing for the next day. So I did not do anything else uh, but run that site, basically. And even on the weekends, when I wasn't, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be working, um, I would be online oftentimes helping the weekend editor, who was, who was very self-sufficient, but I would oftentimes be like, you know, is everything okay, and yada, yada, yada. I was, I, you know, I had my fingers in there. It's because I felt very proprietary about it. So after three, it was, after about three years, I was burnt out. Um, I was very unhealthy. Like, I was very sedentary because I didn't move. <laughs> I was sitting at this desk in my apartment all day long, so I gained weight and was eating badly and was, I wouldn't say I was unhappy. It was, it was a very heady time. It was really exciting because the site had, had taken off and, and was only growing and, and you know. And was, beloved. And the years went by and yeah, it, it really felt like there was something really interesting happening. But I think that instead of taking that as a sign that we were doing something right and kind of relaxing, I took it as a sign that I should work even harder. Um, and again, it really is because of my feeling of ownership. If the site had existed before I came on the scene, I would have worked very hard, but I don't think I would have gone that crazy in terms of my work habits because I wouldn't have felt so proprietary about it. There are inside jokes in there from like the three years that I ran the site that I hope that old readers will recognize. Uh, just you know, references to like fights that were that we had, <laughs> or phrases that were coined, and not just among the writers, but among the commenters who were and are very vocal. Uh, so 
at the time that I left the site, there was a, a discussion about, well, you know, can the quote-unquote brand be extended into other places? And as you know, we were trying to do a TV thing because you came in and read for it. Yes. <laughs> and then we were also talking about doing a book. Now, the TV thing didn't work out, and I'm not surprised, and I have thoughts about that, but I'm not going to get into it now. Um, but we'd also, you know, were interested in doing a book. And I think that there was some hesitation on the part of Gawker Media because they had done one other book before and it had been a big stinker. Um, and I didn't want to do another stinker. <laughs> but the difference was that book, which was Brandon DeGawker, came out, I think, 2007. It was not written by people who worked on the site. You know, they'd been hired from the outside. So there maybe wasn't maybe didn't translate completely. But I think also it was a, from what I remember, yeah, it was a book about, called like the Gawker Guide to All Media. And ostensibly, I guess that was supposed to appeal to people who wanted to work in media, because anyone who worked in media already wasn't gonna care about that sort of a book. Like they didn't need that book. Why but, don't we go a step further and sort of look at, you know, Gawker, despite being the creator of all of these things, mm -hmm. has a very mixed reputation. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of uh, something that people love to hate, yet they read anyway, sort mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Jezebel does not have that reputation. It has a very warm... Oh, you think so? Beyond. I okay. think that it's quite beloved. And even I think though it's beloved, but, there, there, but there's haters. No, 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 there's many things that I personally, I love Jezebel. I can go through this book and be like, I don't understand why that was this way, or I don't, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I have lots mm -hmm. of feelings, mm -hmm. <laughs> just as a reader, <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> about who gets this much ink, why does this yeah. person not get any ink, yeah. and what what the hell is that supposed to say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't okay. understand. Okay, hit me. But I still love Jezebel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It never, in fact, it fuels my love for it that I can have these types of individual criticisms mm -hmm. of things. There's probably but, a zillion. Well, what do you think is missing? I'd love to know what you think is missing. I wanted Anna Julia Cooper mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. in there. I was yeah. really confused. So part of it also. We forgot stuff. It wasn't, it, that, you know, she's not in there, but not because someone said she doesn't deserve to be in this book. It's because we forgot to put people in there. Like someone reminded me last night at an event. I think this entry was written and somehow it got lost, but someone said, where's Coco Chanel? I'm like, that's a really good fucking question. Yes. I don't know where Coco Chanel is. Probably on my computer at home, and I don't know how the entry you know, got mixed up, but we had so many writers sending in copy, and I think the stuff got lost. And Angelia Cooper was not assigned. I knew that for a fact, and I, so I'm more almost mortified about that than Coco Chanel. Um, but I'm and just to explain who she is, you know, she was one of the first black feminists mm -hmm. who spoke about the veil, and the reason that I would be upset that Jezebel doesn't include this, and obviously it's not out of malevolence, the, the specific reason is because Jezebel is so good at um, showing <laughs> how women of color not only have to deal with race, but they have to deal with sexism, and here's mm -hmm. how in, let's mm -hmm. say, Girls or something mm -hmm. like that. Where, mm -hmm. so, so the frustration, again, is coming directly from, yeah. but you're so good at showing this right. so why in a you? different medium. Why aren't you? Yeah. Now, that also reflects something of the other question I had for you was, so many of your writers, including yourself, write for all these different magazines, mm -hmm. partly because you have to make a living, partly because mm -hmm. it's wonderful to be able to write for different kinds of mm -hmm. outlets. When you write for, let's say, Slate or the New York Times, do you have a different voice? I don't know that... Does your voice change, yeah. or is it oh, still sure. your voice as a writer? No, no, I, no I, th I think it changes. Like, for example, if I were to write a blog post on Jezebel, which I haven't done you know, in years, it would be much more r relaxed or conversational, whereas... Believe me, when I write for the New York Times or if I write something for the New Yorker online, I get extremely uptight. It's not 
because I'm being instructed to get extremely uptight, but it's because that those names mean something, and I feel like I have to be somewhat more contained and you know chin stroking and thoughtful in a you way. Put tweet on, for example, <laughs> when you're sitting at home just to write for the New York. Oh, the yeah. Well, if, if I own some, although <laughs> I actually do own some tweed, it's like J Crew tweed that's somewhere in the back of my closet. But yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, like it, it's like it's like I become more uptight, and like again, that's not because anyone said you need to be this way when you write for these places, but it's because they're serious, big name places, and I still feel at the age of 40, even though I've written for them numerous times, there's a certain sense of, I can't believe I get to do this. So so a lot of it's fear. I mean, a lot of it is like fear. And when you are afraid, you seize up. And that's the way I feel I, I am when I write for them. It's interesting to hear also because you have a column at you know New York Times. Now I do, yeah, yes. the book review. Book yeah. review, yeah. And, well, that's even more prestigious than yeah. almost any other oh, okay. section in the magazine. Uh -huh. So then to hear that you still. Oh yeah, I get totally stressed out by it. But you know, what's funny is that with that sort of thing, that's a column and they want you to use your real voice in, in, in a way more than I think that if I was writing a, like an op-ed needs to, like has a certain tone. I mean, those, those op-eds, you know, they have staff op-ed writers obviously and then they have guest op-ed writers. But like that, like the op-ed page to me feels like it needs to be extremely serious. It is serious. It's one of the most important sections in the, in the paper. With, with a column in the book section, which isn't to say that, that the book section is less serious than the op-ed page, but the fact that it's a column and that it's recurring means that they want your voice a little more maybe than, than some other part of the paper. So I don't, I, I feel intimidated by that gig, but I haven't been seizing up as much as I thought I would. Um, but I also, you know, am only writing out what I know. If they want me to write a column about uh, 19th century British literature, I am not the person to do that, and so I'm not going to take that on. And, and, and the editor there is very um, warm and, you know, gives me ideas, and she says, you know, which of these ideas do you think you'd want to take on? And I'll tell her I could do, you know, four of those eight, and then she'll pair me up with someone else. But then I, you know, I have some agency in it. I can kind of choose what I think I actually have something to say about, or, or, or I have something interesting to say about. If I had to write about the whole world of quote unquote literature, cap, cap, capital L, well, I wouldn't have said yes to their request because I just wouldn't have felt that I was the right person. But it, it does feel like it's very specific to each writer and what kind of strengths or interests they have. You were going to answer before and I interrupted. Why did you leave Jezebel? Oh, I left because I was burnt out. I left because I felt that Nick wanted the site to be bigger in ways that I wasn't willing to do. Like he wanted more coverage of let's say makeup or beauty. And I, you know, I mean, I really felt like if you wanna learn about beauty stuff, there are a million other websites that will do that for you. We don't have to do that. And the fact that I was burnt out meant that like it wasn't really my time anymore. You know, I, I really, it was an unsustainable job. I, again, I didn't see my friends ever. I didn't leave my apartment. I was very unhealthy, but you know, that said, it was very hard to leave because I felt very protective and proprietary about it. And I don't have kids, but I keep likening that site to like having a baby, and then you have to feed it and nurture it, and it grows up a little bit, and then you have to hand it off to somebody else. And like that was that was painful, but it was necess you know, very necessary. And it's your identity. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, because that's all I did um, all day. I think if I had had more of a um, a separation between work and, and, and the rest of my life, then, then maybe I wouldn't have been so wrapped up in it. But it was very exciting to be part of something that people responded to in that way. And it was addictive. And the internet itself is addictive. I mean, like take Jezebel out of the equation um, 
or, or, or the reaction I to can't. it. Just like the internet, <laughs> just the, the internet, the internet is addictive. I don't know if you, sp you know, I spend many hours in front of my laptop, you know, looking at Twitter now. Is that what? So, what propelled you to write the book? That was the other thing I interrupted you speaking about. Just that we wanted to have a kind of physical object that was representative of the sensibility of the site because you know a blog is very ephemeral you know we would put up a fantastic post at 11 a.m. on any given day and by 6 p.m. it was off the page you know it had been moved down and off the page and it wasn't going to get seen as much and you know that was a frustration with the job a bit in that the writers would do really outstanding stuff a lot of the time that that you know got attention but oftentimes I wanted it to to have more permanence. Um, you know, we still talk about our favorite posts from four or five, six years ago. And yeah, I can go Google them and bring them up. But we just wanted to do something with more permanence. That said, I didn't want to take content from the site and put it in a book. Because I figured if you want to read content from the site, you can go to the site and do a search. Um, it, it seems a little lazy to, to just take something that was already done four years ago and plunk it into a book, into book form. Although there, there, there are actually two things in here that were previously published. One is uh, a crappy mail from a dude, which was a feature on the site. So we, I found one of the good ones and put it in the book. Um, and the other one is a sidebar that Aaron Ryan had done on the site about nice guys, uh, which we put in the book. But everything else is original. But you know, it was it was it was kind of here. I'll put it this way: it was it was an experiment. Like, could we translate the site to the book? It was also because I didn't want a full time job after I quit. Like, I was so burnt out that I couldn't have taken like another full time job. But this was like a project to work on that I could do at a little bit more of a leisurely pace that was, you know, made sense for me to do because I had been running the site, so I kind of felt like I knew it, you know, pretty intimately um, and what the sensibility was, um, but would also you know, allow me to do a little bit of freelancing and have a life again, so that's why. And so you do this and you write for the New York Times mm -hmm. and the New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, like when I have, when I have something to, to, to write for them. The New York Times is a gig, which is, you know, a guaranteed thing that goes on. Whereas the New Yorker, it's like I have to have an idea, and does the editor like the idea, and then we kind of talk it through, and then I write it. So that's much more intermittent. Um, Anna Holmes, thank you so, so much for being here. Uh, thank you for sharing the book of Jezebel, and I look forward to seeing your next adventures very soon. Thank you, Katie. That's it for this episode of the Employee of the Month show. Thank you to Joel Arnold. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. Please go to the employeeofthemonthshow.com website um, where you can subscribe to find out about monthly live tapings and how to get more episodes and how to be your best self and how to find true love and also win the lottery. It's all there. Just go to the employeeofthemonthshow.com and answer for every single question, um, including how to uh, get insurance, health insurance from the new Obamacare. It's all there. I mean, trust me, everything is there. There's nothing in nothing. You can probably get lunch. You can just, if you can print it out, if you have a 4D printer, one that includes um, senses, you'll be fine. You'll feel satiated after. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks so much for listening.